0: Well, we are continuing on in the book of Matthew today. So why don't you open up to Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Matthew eleven twenty 20 through 24 is our text this morning. Uh, Reality Ventura will be joining us this morning. So let's give him some love. Right, Ventura. Love you guys. I'll be reading from the NIV this morning. Here we go. Matthew 11, verse 20. It says, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. For you, Capernaum, will be lifted to the heavens. No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. This is a doozy. Let's pray. This is God's word. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And thank you that in the pages of it we find you, we find Jesus. And we ask, God, that you would speak to us this morning through it, that you would reveal yourself, that you would give us incredible understanding to what this means and what it means for us and how it applies to us. We ask that your will would be done, that you would accomplish all that you would want to accomplish in this time. We say, God, have your way with us. We're here to meet with you. We we gather around Christ this morning. We so badly want to be, want to not only hear from you, but be changed by you this morning. We want to leave this place with a fuller view of Christ. So do that, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, I want to kind of bring you up to speed. for the for the chapter the for the chapter eleven of Matthew, Jesus has been answering and responding to some questions and some concerns that have come up. See, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, is now imprisoned, and Jesus is is He's in his, the season of this public ministry, and he's going around, and he's healing all kinds of sickness, and he's making the blind man sees, and he, see, and he's raising the, the dead, and he's bringing the good news to the poor. He's eating and drinking with you know, prostitutes and tax collectors, and the kingdom of God is inaugurated, so to speak. The kingdom of God has come, and, and the people of Israel are seeing it. But John the Baptist in Israel thought when the Messiah came, it would look very different than what Jesus was doing. And there were some questions, there were some concerns, there were some doubts. And what Jesus has been doing thus far in this chapter is he's been proving to the crowds that through Old Testament prophecy that not only John the Baptist but himself have answered this. That he is who he said he was. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world and he is the Messiah that they've been looking for. And as much as John and Israel wanted judgment upon the oppressive Roman rule of the time, God, out of his love for humanity, came and he met with and ministered to those that would not even be spoken to by society. The outcasts, the frail, the weak, the pushed aside. This is who Jesus met with. In these last two weeks, we've been introduced to to God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And thus far, we've seen Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior. But our text this morning, we see Jesus also as judge. But we'll see, he judges us because he loves us. But this text is nonetheless, it's heavy. It's gnarly. It's, It's a little bit of a shift in gears. Our text this morning is as if, imagine this. Imagine Jesus coming up to you and saying, it would be better for Hitler and Mussolini on the day of judgment than it would be for you. Imagine if Jesus said that to you. That is the setting or the weight of what Jesus is saying to these cities in northern Israel. And he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and so on and so forth. It's a heavy text. And though it wasn't, you know, Jesus' primary thrust in his first coming to bring judgment, as we just talked about, he did denounce sin. And specifically, in these verses this morning, he points out three cities by name. He calls them out. He confronts their sin, he confronts their unrepentance. And he specifically does it. Because he says here that some of his most significant miracles occurred in these places. Some of the most significant ways in which God moved were in these cities, but they still did not believe. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 this morning, it says that Jesus started denouncing these cities where he had done many of these signs and wonders, these miraculous messianic miracles, miracles that were only done by the Messiah himself. And even though these people experienced God and saw him move, they still did not repent of their sins. They still did not turn to God. And Jesus is confronting that. In verse 21 and 22, he begins to call them by name. He says, Chorazin. What are you, Chorazin? See, Chorazin was an ancient village in northern Galilee on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, about two and a half miles away from Capernaum, the next city we'll read about. It was on the hill overlooking the sea. And this right here in Matthew 11 and its correlating account in Luke chapter 10 is the only place that we hear anything about this city. All we know is that Jesus performed many miraculous signs and wonders there and they did not believe. The next city he brings up is Bethsaida. This also is a city very near Chorazin. It's it's east of the Jordan River on the edge of the sea. We know a bit more about this city. Um, Peter, Andrew, uh, and Philip were from there. Jesus gave sight to a blind man. We see this account in Mark chapter 8. And the feeding of the 5,000 happened in this city. If there was ever a time to see a miraculous sign of God, was him to multiply the food right on the sea in this city. And what Jesus does is he, he calls them out by name, And he compares them to two other cities. He compares them to a city by the name of Tyre and Sidon. These cities were not in Galilee inland. They were on the Mediterranean coast, still in northern Israel. But for for centuries, they were known for their wickedness and their perversion. I mean, the Old Testament prophets even spoke of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Isaiah 23, Ezekiel 26, Amos chapter 1. They were spoken about of the worst of the worst cities, so to speak. And what Jesus is doing, he says, even if the worst of the worst had seen me move in the same way, they would have believed, right? He uses that, you know, they would have, had, they would have thrown on sackcloth and ashes and they would have gone out in public and remorsed over their sin. Even they would have repented and they didn't even get to see me in the flesh. They had just heard of me. See, when Christ performed these, these miracles, when he, when he did these things, when he fed the 5,000 and he uh, gave the blind man sight, these were works of power. They were, they were the manif- manifestations of the presence of God. And accordingly, they were invitations to people to reflect on how they stood with God. And ultimately, so they would repent of the evil they had done. There was purpose and why God did the things he did. It wasn't just to show off, like, look at me, I'm Jesus, I'm the Son of God, I can do these things, hey, you only have a couple fish and a couple of loaves of bread. Watch this. There was purpose. He was showing himself to be God. There was, it was the manifestation of the presence of God here on earth, but for the purpose that they would repent of their sins. The third city here in verses 23 and 24 is the city of Capernaum. Capernaum had been Jesus' home base of missions. It was his adopted hometown. I mean, the city of Capernaum, you read the Gospels and it's, and it's littered with it. We hear much, of, uh, much about the city of Capernaum. And what Jesus said in a nutshell is you might think you have it all together. You might think you're awesome and you might deserve that heaven's going to rejoice in you. No. Woe to you. You've seen these things. You've had these things done. I have spent much of my time here with you. I mean, mean sleeping and living with you here in your midst and you still have not believed. And then... (laughs) Jesus makes the heaviest statement that you could make. He says, it would be better, it's gonna be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than you. It's as if Jesus stood in front of you and said, it's better for Hitler and Mussolini on the day of judgment than you. It is the worst, heaviest thing that you could say. Sodom is AKA the worst city ever. And so to be compared to that, is obviously a heavy statement of judgment. And Jesus is is judging their disbelief so strongly because they saw the mighty works of the Messiah the most. And yet they did not repent and they did not believe. We see here a picture of the inward condition of the human heart. Right, despite seeing God move and experience the presence of the power of God. You know, it wasn't only those cities. I mean, uh, much of Israel was seen and experiencing Jesus. And we too, through his word and through his spirit, have seen God move and heard much about him. But the sinful inward condition of our hearts that despite those things, we still don't believe. And specifically, we still don't come to repent. Jesus is very concerned with this idea of repentance when he's speaking to these three, these three cities. And he's very concerned about us repenting of sins as well. And before we move on, we need to understand what repentance is. You know, repentance is an about face. It's a turning away from and it's a turning to something else. By definition, repentance is a heartfelt Sorrow for sin. It's a renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a a heartfelt sorrow for our sin, the sins we've committed before God. It's a renouncing of our sin, a sincere commitment to forsake it, to turn away from it and turn to God. For those of you that are a bit more analytical and need a little bit more, repentance is, number one, the first step in repentance is an intellectual understanding. We need to understand that sin is wrong, that it's wrong, that it's rebellion to God, that it's, it's something that we're not designed to do, that when we're in sin, we're going against God's design, and we're experiencing the effects of sin. Repentance first is an intellectual Understanding that sin is wrong. The second step of repentance is an emotional approval of the teachings of Scripture. It's connecting our heart to that idea. And not only connecting our heart, but to have a a sorrow over it. I mean, real remorse of what we've done. Even a hatred of sin. The second way is, is to have an emotional approval of the teachings of Scripture regarding sin. Connecting our heart to our mind. And lastly, repentance is turning from sin and making a personal decision to turn from it, a renouncing of it, forsaking sin in our life, leading to a life of obedience, that idea of about-face, turning from sin and turning to Christ instead. And so when Jesus... Is confronting these unrepentant cities, or when we say that we're unrepentant of sins, what that means is that we're unwilling to turn from living in our sin and turning to God. And so, for instance, these cities that he brings up, they were unwilling to turn away from their selfish, independent lifestyle. They were unwilling to give that up and turn to God. And so, what that is saying is that God I'm saying no to you, and I'm saying yes to what I want. The way I want it, when I want it, because I want it. That's what unrepentance is. Repentance is turning away from sin, turning to God. Unrepentance is the opposite. It's literally saying no to God and saying yes to sin, or a lifestyle of sin. The reason why this matters for us is that we are plagued, with this problem. See, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What do I mean by all? Well, if you're a human, if you're a human being, this applies to us. This applies to the human race, everyone that has ever existed in any culture in any year. We as humanity are fallen. And it started in the garden with Adam and Eve. It started there. Things were perfect. Things were good. It was a sinless world until sin entered the world. And because of that, we are all now, we all now have fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sinned and fallen short of his glorious standard. So this idea of repentance of sin actually does apply to all of us. And it really matters. See, like Israel and the rest, you know, like these cities and these, in Israel, we are also left with a choice. We've seen God. We've heard the good news of the gospel. We've seen him move. And we've heard about what he've done, has, he's done and his death on the cross. We understand that we're sinners and that we're that we've fallen short of His glorious standard. But will we repent? That's the question. Or will we be like these unrepentant cities, where even though they knew it and saw God and heard Him, they still did not believe? See, there's implications to whether you repent of sin or you don't. They're pretty grave implications. Pretty important implications. Last week, I left you with a similar question, or a, a question that also has real implications. The question we left you with last week is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah or not? And what does that mean for you? And there's, there's grave implications to that. See, the thing is, is that sin has consequences, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. What that means is that the end result, what sin produces, is death. Well, what do you mean by death? Uh, Physical death, because the effects of sin, but then also eternal death. Sin has real consequences if it's not dealt with. Or in other words, if your sin is not repented of, it has real implications, real consequences. See, there will come a time where every single one of us will stand before God and our lives will give an answer to whether or not we believed, we trusted in God, and we repented of our sins, and were forgiven of our sins. And here's the implications. If we know Him and if we've repented of our sin and we've trusted Him as Savior and Lord, then we'll be with him for all of eternity in heaven. And the implications of if we don't know him, if we haven't repented, if we haven't dealt with our sins, if we're still living in our sin, is that we are separated from God for all of eternity. And it's in a place called hell. Here's why, here's why this matters. God is the source of all things good and all love. God is the source where all things good and all love comes from. So the reason why hell is bad is because God is not there. And if God is not there, it means that it is completely and utterly void of anything good or any love. Think about that. We live in a fallen world right now but really what makes it any good is God is here and we see him working and we do experience, maybe dimly through a glass, but we still experience God's love and his goodness in the world today. We live in a really horrible, messed up, dark world, but we're still experiencing God's goodness and God's love. That doesn't happen in hell. And the reason why heaven is so good Is that we're brought into absolute goodness and perfected love because we're in the presence of God. In heaven, there's no sin, and so all the junk that we deal with now is gone, and it's just perfect love and absolute goodness, and we get all of who God is for all of eternity. Amen? It's real implications real implications to this. But we have to be reminded why God in the first place sent His, His, sent His Son to this lost and dying world and why in the midst of this He would even judge our sin. It's because of His love. John three sixteen. If you want to call it basic, whatever, but it's the most profound verse in Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God loved us that he sent his son to deal with our sin. The reason why God has to deal with our sin and why he can't just overlook it or sweep it to the side or just let everybody in and like, isn't everything okay? And like, can't we just all be in heaven? Why does this need to happen? It's because God is just and God is good. And if he really is, he he can't overlook or tolerate evil. We see that through Scripture with Adam and with Cain and Saul and David. He didn't overlook their sin, and certainly he won't overlook our sin. And the reason also is that he can't overlook sin is because it defies his character, right? The Lord's eternal. He's incomparable. He's perfect. He's sovereign. He's holy. He's merciful, gracious, and loving. God is righteous, and God is just. And sin can't be in his presence. Habakkuk one thirteen says, His eyes are too pure to look on evil. But most importantly, if God overlooked our sin, that wouldn't be love. He cares if we're broken. He cares if we're hurting. See, when we sin... It damages and it breaks the the original design God had for us. And the effects of sin are incredibly damaging for our own life and for this world. And if God were just to say, go with it, be in your sin, be left to it. That's not loving. God loves us and he cares about us. And he's concerned that sin is ruining our lives. So God has to deal with it. Out of his love for us, God has to deal with our sins. You may think, God, can you just let me get away with that? But he can't allow that. He can't allow us to get away with it. He loves us too much. Sin has a price, like we talked about. And a price has to be paid for our rebellion in order for our sins to be paid for. See, sin requires justice, or our sin requires God to judge us. And the only way to pay the price of sin is with a life. Right? If the wages of sin is death, the only way to pay our debt, so to speak, or the credit of sin against us, what we've accrued is with a life, because the penalty of sin is death. And the only way to pay the price of sin is with a life. This is where God's justice him being just and perfect and holy and righteous meets God's mercy. See, God, even though he sees the sin of the world and he can't live with it and he can't condone it and he can't overlook it, he sees that. But he's also provided a way for us as sinners to escape his judgment, escape his wrath. See, he had compassion on us because he loves us and he doesn't want to be without us. Because that's God's intent. Even from the beginning, God wanted to be with his people and sin has broken that relationship. And God's desire by sending his son to die for us is to repair a broken relationship so that God could be with us for all of eternity. A lot of people say, What's the, why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, well, the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, but what does the forgiveness of sins get us? God. Forgiveness of sins is, is the way in which God gets us. Because God created us to be with him, free of sin for all of eternity. And out of his mercy and his grace, he sent his son to die for us in our place. Jesus paid the wages of sin with his own life. To help us understand this concept, I want, to think, I want you to think about something. Imagine you committed murder. And you went to court and there was a case and the sentence was death. Execution. And you were on death row and the day had come where you were going to be Executed. It's as if in that moment, someone came up and said, stop, I will take his or her place. I will die for them. Justice will be served. You'll get a life, but free them. Let them go. That is what God did with his son. He saw us in our despair and our brokenness, our wandering. And he sent his son to save us. And he sacrificed his his spotless, sinless son. And Christ was really the only one qualified to to, to pay the price for our sin because he had never sinned himself. He was the perfect, spotless lamb of God to pay the price for our sins. It's a theological term we call this propitiation, meaning Jesus Christ was the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. That debt that we accrued with our own sin, Jesus paid it with his own life so that we wouldn't have to. I get an amen. amen. Are, you, are you grasping this? A lot. Good. Colossians two thirteen and 14, New Living Translation says it really good says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your sins and he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. There was a record of charges against us that had to be paid for because God is just. But out of his mercy, he sent his son to pay it for us. This is absolutely unbelievable. One of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says, he made him, God made Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that he, excuse me, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what is called the great exchange. That Jesus took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. Talk about a good deal. Right? Our sin was put on his shoulders and he was nailed to the cross for us. And what he gave us in return or in exchange was his righteousness, meaning when we stand before the Father, when the day of judgment comes, you know what God will see when he looks at us? Jesus. He'll see the righteousness of God in us. We've been justified. We've been made right before God because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. Literally, Christ imputed us his righteousness. And this is what that means. Christ has attributed, ascribed, assigned, or credited his his perfect righteousness to us. That's what he did on the cross. In order for us to get to God. And the way to get to God is a door called repentance. The way in which our broken, sinful relationship is put back together and we're reunited with God is through repentance. See, repentance is a beautiful thing. Some of us have a, a, you know, maybe a misconceived idea or a wrong understanding or when we hear repent, we're like, I don't want to deal with that. Oh, fire and brimstone. You're talking about that today. But repentance is, is a beautiful thing because it brings us back to God. It restores relationships and communion with him. It restores us back to our intended design with him. You know, in in the beginning of Acts, after Pentecost, you know, the Holy Spirit has has, uh, come and onto the early church. Peter gives this amazing, anointed, empowered by the Spirit sermon. And 3,000 people come to the Lord in that moment. And there's one thing he says in Acts 3, chapter 19. He says, repent then the... and and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repentance is beautiful and it brings times of refreshing because we're restored back to our relationship with God. And don't misunderstand repentance. Romans 2, 4, the goodness of God leads us to repentance or the love of God leads us to repentance, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his son to give us a way out. God's so good. And the more we learn about God's goodness, the more we're drawn into this wonderful gift he offers us in salvation through his son. Because of his goodness and his love for us, God gave us his only son who was sinless to pay for our sins. Absolutely incredible. For most of us, we've done this, at least as as a significant time or moment in our lives, and that's how we are Christians, right? There's this this definitive moment or time in our life where we've recognized our sin, and we've recognized our need for a Savior, and we've seen it to be Jesus, and we believed with our hearts that He is Lord, and we've confessed, and we we believe that God rose Him from the dead, and we're saved, right? But there may be some of you in here that have not made that. And I will say the first step to that is understanding our condition or the problem that we have. Right? That we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Prince of Preachers, would say, uh, he, would, he would sum it up in one word. He says, first, you need ruin. That was his, his, his coined phrase. It starts with ruin, meaning it starts with you really know where you're at, that you're a sinner in the need of a Savior. and You're ruined by that. Not only do you know sin is wrong, but, but you're remorseful over that. You understand your sinful state. You're ruined by it. Secondly, once you come to grips that you're a sinner, we need to... Believe and understand that there is a solution in the person of Jesus Christ. And what God has done. And, the, and the, that good news that he's given us in his son. That word that Charles Spurgeon would use is redemption. We need to believe and trust that, that Christ has accomplished this on the cross. That he, he's provided full pardon from our guilt of sin and every sinner who believes. Book of Romans chapter 3, again, verses 24 and 25, says this. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus Christ sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. Not only do we need to know our problem We need to know there's a solution in the person of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we need to respond. We need to respond to those two truths, right? The reality that we're sinners, the reality that Jesus is who he said he was. We need to respond by believing and putting our trust in God. And at that moment, when we do that, when we come under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, when we can say that our life is no longer our own, it's yours, God it's by your grace that i've been saved i've been set free from the bondage of the penalty of sin in that moment god changes us he regenerates us he makes us new creations the old has come i mean the, the old has passed away and the new has come we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son and at that moment he frees us from the bondage of sin and he gives us his spirit And repentance, so what repentance involves is it involves an understanding of our state or our ruin as sinners. It involves trusting in Jesus' redemption through the cross and allowing Christ to make us brand new through the regeneration of His Spirit. And for those of you that haven't made that decision, that's how you would do it. That's how you would come to know Jesus. That's how you would be saved. That's how you would repent of your sins for the first time but for those of us that have done that christians in this room right followers of christ the question would be well do we need to repent or is it just like a one-time thing what, why do we need to repent well i will say yes we do need to repent but it's, it may be in a slightly different way see as christians scripture it calls us to maintain a repentant heart To routinely acknowledge sin and seek God's grace and mercy in the midst of our daily mistakes. See, when you repent for the first time, it doesn't mean that you're a perfect human now. Jesus is perfect. We're not. We're works in progress. Our life is on a different trajectory now. Right? We do obey God's will. We obey God's word. We strive to. But we still will fall into temptation and we'll make mistakes. And when we do, because God by his love has changed us and we've been redeemed and justified and made right before him. We realize that when we sin, we're going the wrong way. That's not how I should act. That's not how I should live. That doesn't honor or glorify God. See, when we, when we sin after we've already repented and already saved, our relationship with God isn't broken like before. We're still near to God. God's still the same. God still loves us and cares about us. And positionally, we still are right before God. Those things are all true. But when we sin, as followers of Christ now, we have to realize that under his lordship, we can't do that anymore. We're going the wrong way. That's not... As followers of Christ, we are not to live in that way. We're to be transformed by the power and the presence of God in our life. And so when we sin, because we will, we will stumble, we will fall, we will, we will, there's times of weakness in our life, we do need to repent. Because remember, by definition, repentance is an about face. So as Christians, when we fall, when we mess up, when we sin against God, we come to him and we repent because what we're saying is, God, I want to turn from that way I'm going because that's not the way that you have for me. I want to turn away from sin. I want to turn back to you, please, by the power of your spirit that you've given me when I was saved, help me. Help me, God. And that's what happens as believers now, right? We, we have the word of God and we're reading it. And we're knowing God's word. The Spirit of God is in us, and it's convicting us when we do go astray. And we as believers are to daily maintain, right? We're to, to, to acknowledge our shortcomings and our faults, and we're, supposed to, and we're to present them to God in a very similar way, in the same way as we did before. Not for salvation's sake, right? We're already saved. We're already going to be with Him. But we need to turn from sin and turn to God. Because Christians, remember repentance is beautiful. It's wonderful. Repentance is beautiful because it points to the cross. And it points to Jesus. And it points to the work that he did on the cross. I want to read to you Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 out of the New Living Translation. I have it up here to end our time right now. It says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But look at verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that we've been saved. For he raised us from the dead among with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created anew in Christ Jesus, so he can do good things he planned for us long ago. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Father God, we are in awe of your love. We are in awe of your, your mercy and your grace towards us. And Lord, as we worship you now, we pray that we would come to you with our sin. We come to you, God, asking for forgiveness, that you would restore us back to you, whether it be for the first time, or God, because we're changed people and we're going the wrong way, we ask that you set us right. Help us, Lord, to turn from sin and turn to you this morning. Help us, Lord, to embrace repentance, knowing that in repentance, in repentance we get you. Thank you, Lord, we ask that you'd have your way, that you'd be praised and worshiped and magnified and celebrated as we worship you because you are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be praised, Father, Be magnified and exalted in this place. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.